Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Colin Dombrowski. He's the author of what's called the, uh, the Foot Strength Plan. He's a, a foot specialist as well. So, Colin, thanks for coming. Hey, thanks for having me on. Why, why the interest in, is it in feet or is it in locomotion or is it in foot problems or like what's your particular interest in, in feet? You know, I, I have a lot of different interests when it comes to feet and just how how foot pain and or healthy feet affect the way that we walk. And, you know, I, I came to it like a lot of people in the health profession. I was a patient first. It was somebody like me many years ago that got me back to activity after a hip replacement when I was really, really young, left me with a fairly significant discrepancy in leg length. And as you can imagine, you know, a couple of inches when your legs are different lengths, it's pretty hard to get around. And it was just life-changing what this, what this gentleman did for me. And so I decided kind of then and there, that's what I was going to do. What do you do for you, the, the gentleman you mentioned? How did he help you? Yeah. So, so after I have this congenital vascular disorder called avascular necrosis, which basically gave me really bad arthritis when I was really, really young. And so at 17, the only real surgery they could do for me for a great outcome was a joint saving surgery. And that left me with about a two inch discrepancy in leg length. So this podorthist, who was really trained in the design and the manufacturer of custom foot orthotics and how footwear interact, built a lift onto my shoe that allowed me to walk that took all the forces off my back that were keeping me from being able to participate in activity properly. Okay, so 
uh, it was a special, what, like a prosthetic or an orthotic or what was it? It, to it, make it, it was an orthotic. It was a shoe lift. So they basically just cut the shoe in, uh, you know, a part of the sole. They add the amount on, they rocker it properly. They put everything back together and off we go. It doesn't sound like rocket science, let me tell you. Um, but the difference of doing that was was life-changing. And the surgeon at the time completely wrote off, you know, any ill effects from the discrepancy as, as it were, as it was at that point. And so we kind of said, okay, well, we won't worry about it. And, you know, what, what did we know back then? And, uh, but this, the specialist certainly knew different. And now, I mean, I, I, I can't be five to 10 minutes without my shoes on without significant back pain, because again, mm. you know, having a two inch discrepancy in leg length is fairly significant. And so that's what brought me to this field of, of being a foot specialist who really specializes in footwear and orthotics and how those things interact with how people walk and get around every day and how those things can interplay and affect with long-term disability injury and uh, conditions that are sports medicine related. So what kind of uh, foot issues do you deal with predominantly? What's your foot strength plan for? You know, 60% of my day is plantar fasciitis, which is actually why I wrote my first, my first book called The Plantar Fasciitis Plan. It's a, it's, it, you know, it can be a really debilitating injury for a lot of people. And it's surprising when you say, oh, yeah, you know, plantar fasciitis. They go, I, I had that or my wife had that. Or my mom currently has that. It's shocking to me how many people, you know, around around the world have this this condition. How does it arise? What happens? What is it? What happens? Well, and that's really the interesting part. We you know people talk about it clearly. What is it? There's some real disagreement in the literature as to whether or not it's truly an acutely acquired inflammatory type disorder, whether it's a long term tissue breakdown disorder. Some people have suggested that it could be both of them together, but really, it really comes down to is you know, the interplay of some risk factors relating to obesity, uh, standing and walking on hard floors for long periods of time and losing range of motion in your ankle itself or in the musculature uh, higher up. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I've had orthotics myself and I'm flat footed and I've had my arches collapse and things like that. So sure. I would guess plantar fasciitis would be, you know, one way is if, uh, again, you're, I guess, I don't know what I would call it. The, um, the pattern that your foot makes when you tread or, you know, the arrangement of the muscles and the tissues when you're standing or walking, I guess it's causing repetitive strain that eventually inflames the fascia in the bottom of your foot. This is it, you know, and for some people, they're going to wind up with that condition. And, you know, what's the really most interesting part about what I do is that what I was trained to think about 20 years ago in that people who have really flat feet are going to be just in that position, right? Through cyclical loading of soft tissue, you're going to overstrain the tissue and over time that's going to you're going to wind up with some kind of foot problem well the the problem you know from the research side of things is that what we see in the research and what happens clinically don't really match up and so we've got some people who are so significantly flat-footed yet they have no problems right they do had they do Ironman triathlons they're MMA fighters they're people who have you know high amounts of athletic ability and they're fine And then you have other people who have perfectly normal looking feet who are just plagued with all kinds of issues. And what it might come down to is is your your own body's ability to handle the cyclical repetitive soft tissue stresses. And some people have higher tolerances than others. It was actually uh, called the soft tissue stress theory that... um, a gentleman named Thomas McPoyle, who was a PhD AT out of uh, out of the states in the '90s, came up with this theory, and it really answers that clinical question elegantly: is how can some people, you know, really be so flat-footed they make little suction cup sounds when they walk, yet they're fine? 
right? And uh, th that was really the hardest part as a new clinician going in after school thinking I could cure the world, uh, but then seeing this, this real mismatch out in the field. Well, what is it that, uh, that, that tells more of the story? So it's not necessarily the foot being flat or having an arch or high arch, but what is it? Well, I think we can put people on a spectrum when it comes down to it and that, you know, on one end of the spectrum, you've got people that can do everything quote unquote wrong. They can go couch to marathon and they're fine. They can wear old worn out shoes. They can get improper sleep, have bad nutrition, do too much too soon, too fast. And yet their ability to stay uninjured through all of that is very, very high. Then you have people on the other end of the spectrum who, despite doing everything right, they've got buttoned up nutrition, great sleep, good recovery habits, great training protocols, excellent footwear, you know, that's matched up to their foot and all of those things. Yet those people are plagued with injury. You know, I think most of us kind of wind up in the middle of that spectrum. And I guess the question that we try to answer for people is which side do you lie more towards? Figure out your puzzle and then how to fix it. Which one is harder to work with? The ones that seem to just do everything wrong but still be okay, but eventually they have problems, or the people that have problems and they're incredibly sensitive and anything that's not right, they're a mess. The incredibly sensitive ones, the ones that have, you know, great, great uh, uh, resilience to, to soft tissue stress, you know, often don't end up seeing me. Those are the ones that can go and they get a pair of Dr. Scholl's, you know, from the, from the pharmacy and they do really, really well. Where, you know, you've got the other people who maybe need a little bit more of, a, of, of an enhanced product. And so, yeah, that, that is definitely the harder segment of, of the population to work with. But also the most interesting at that side, because, you know, I can take two people with the exact same foot type and they wind up with drastically different uh, treatment plans. So what is it then? Is it the person's posture? Is it how they bear weight? I mean, what is it? Do you do a gait analysis? Like, what do you do? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, so we look at everything. We kind of have this proprietary way of looking at people and we call it uh, gate analysis and individual training. So it's our, it's our gate protocol. And so we take them through a bunch of that. The first part and the biggest part of it is just understanding their previous injury history. So really knowing what's happened to them in the past how many injuries they've had, what kind of injuries, when they get into activity, how do they go into it, and really understand sort of that part of it. Once we know that, then we can look at all of the external factors, their footwear, their range of motion, their strength, and how those things interplay, and then come up with an, an actual plan, test that plan, see how they respond to it, and then tweak it from there. You know, and a lot of people, we start off with one, one idea of a place to go, but when we see how their body responds, and then we, we bring them in an entirely different direction. And, you know, I find as clinicians, a lot of the time, we do get kind of, you know, we can get hung up in, in seeing a treatment plan all the way through, but I'm, I'm really a fan of being dynamic and, and seeing how someone's responding. So what are some of the common solutions look like, you know, whether they work or not, what are they? 
they can be really simple. I mean, the, the first one is just the, the inappropriate footwear that's not matched to a person's foot. You would be surprised how often alone just that helps. So in the world of athletic shoes, you can get all different kinds of footwear for all different kinds of feet and mechanical profiles. Some that are really, really you know, good for people and some that can be very, very injurious if you're mismatched. So for instance, if you're a supinator, meaning your foot rolls out from the midline of your body and you wear a shoe that enhances that motion, you could wind up you know, in a big world of hurt very, very quickly. And a lot of people are, are very poor judges of their own foot type. There's actually a, a great piece of research out in the uh, early 2000s uh, that talked about runners specifically who you know, are a really, can be a really tuned in group of people found that even they were poor predictors of what kind of foot type they actually had. And so in knowing that, have seeing that mismatch could be the simplest thing to do from there it's simple things like you know they didn't know that they had a restriction in range of motion in their ankle well we can fix that whether that's coming from the the hamstrings and the you know the, the the gastrox the calf muscles being too tight or whether it's from higher up the chain there's something going on with their hips and they need to do a bit more physio work to fix that you know if we can pick that up early that's that's one of the easiest risk factors to modify by yourself at home to be able to reduce the likelihood of foot problems at any point in your life. You know, it's, it's one of those things, especially with COVID that we've seen happen uh, a lot more over the last year. People are at home. They're working in environments that they're not used to. They're sitting more uh, because they're sitting more. They wind up tightening up a little bit, but then they want to go and walk their dog a couple of times a day. And those two things don't always match up well. So what is the foot strengthening part of this? What's it about? So the How, does foot it help? Strength- How does it work? Yeah, the foot strengthening part of it is really about building a connection again between your brain and your feet to make your feet work like feet. It's it's really just that simple. You know, a lot of people that we see who come in here, they've lost that, whether through injury, your brain's really good at telling a part of your body to turn off because it hurts. And so if anyone's ever sprained their ankle, you know, they can they can see that in the fact that they walk a little bit differently afterwards. And unless you do the real work afterwards, it doesn't always just come back on its own. And so when you compound that over 10,000 steps a day over 20 years, people can really wind up with some dysfunction. And so the beginnings of this, of this book is to reintroduce people into a method to connect with their feet again and make them work like feet. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So again, what does it look like? Are they doing like, uh, you know, grabbing a, a towel with their toes, picking up marbles? Yeah, yeah, so stepping on the hard substance to to you know to like soften up their their arch. I mean, what do they do? That's it. So it's a variety of different things, starting with the real basics of range of motion. And so being able to do things like curl your toes and work your ankle through a full range of motion. Once you've done warm-ups and you can do that progressively, you'll work on to more difficult things like being able to spread your toes again. Again, like we were saying before, taking somebody and just asking them the simple task of, can you take your toes and spread them apart from one another? You'd be shocked how many people actually can't do that after many years of dysfunction. From there, once you can get your foot moving again, we teach you how to use some of the intrinsic muscles in your feet. And so there's a doming exercise or a short foot exercise that allows you to be able to strengthen some of those small stabilizers. And then once you can make that mind-brain connection, and that's actually a very difficult exercise, if you've lost that that foot-brain connection, if you've 
let those muscles get really weak over time, actually being able to do that, that exercise effectively, it's called Janda short foot or the short foot exercise or online is the doming exercise that that can be challenging to be able to, to get that motor pattern back. But then once you do, you can then take that motor pattern and you can use it in different aspects of your life. So once you get really good at it, then we then challenge you to do more progressive and harder exercises. And so there's a different variety of things that you can, you can be challenged with. Well, again, what happens? Do you have anyone that just for athleticism wants to work their feet out? Or have you tried it to, again, the point of muscle building to see what well, happens if you like work and, the heck out of your feet? And so, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, if, if you ever go onto our website, so it's stuffaboutfeet.com where we actually show some of these things. Uh, a lot of the, the feet that are doing the exercises and those are mine. And you, you can see that they, you know, they're, they're really good at doing some of this stuff. And these muscles in your feet, you know, the, especially the deep intrinsic ones, they're not the big prime movers. They're the ones that lend better stability and decrease the effects of fatigue as you walk and do more things. So if you are walking on uneven terrain, you know, they're the ones that help give you stability. They're the ones that, you know, after long, long walks or, you know, big bouts of running or doing things that are going to fatigue you, the stronger those those stabilizing muscles are, uh, the less your arch is going to drop. So it's going to help to reduce strain from different tissues like your plantar fascia. And so that's some of the real world benefit of this is not only getting your foot to work like a foot again, but to remove strain off of some of those larger tissues uh, because you have better stability to be able to do the things that you want to do every day. Do you know anyone that has like Arnold Schwarzenegger feet? For some reason, like, or do you know an activity that really strengthens the heck out of your feet, like a natural activity, or is it more your plan that does it? Oh, I mean, you know, any natural activity, if, if you get, get out of your shoes and get walking around, you know, the, the, that alone, things like walking in sand and being in grass and, you know, doing that stuff where you're challenging your foot to work in different ways, um, certainly is one of the things that, that help with that quite, quite a bit. And, you know, when, when you look to some of the literature as to, you know, the differences between using a minimalist style of shoe, something that actually puts you on an uneven surface um, compared to ones that don't, you can see that those muscles do get a little bit stronger out of just walking in the shoes over, over time. Not to say that that's the only thing that's going to do it, but certainly one thing that can help. Yeah, I've experienced that. I, I felt like it was really uncomfortable and unwieldy to walk without shoes and so I got sandals first that were really comfortable, you know, like these Docker sandals, um, mm-hmm. you know, with a thick cushion. And I, I did that for a few months and then I went to like zeros, you know, these shoes were like no support. Sure. And it took me more months to get used to those. And now, yep. you know, I can walk barefoot. It doesn't really bother. Well, I walk with these zero shoes. It doesn't bother me. The sure. only time I ran into trouble is I, I tried to walk on the street a few times, literally barefoot just to see. Uh, but yeah. one time I stepped on like a small pebble and it, I guess the weight of my body pressed the underside of my foot into it so much that it, you know, the fascia was like bruised for a week or two. And yes. the same thing happened with my toes, you know, with like small things in the road. So, yep. so I wear the zero shoes now and that's okay. It's protective enough, but literally barefoot was hard. 
Yeah, yeah, oh, 100%. And, you know, getting to that and the way that you did that was actually really intelligent, where we see a lot of people that wind up saying, hey, I really want to try that. They get them and they maybe become a little bit too aggressive with how they break them in. And they just go and they put them in da- into their daily lives or they just say, hey, I'm going to go run a 5K. And then they wind up in my office with a stress fracture. So breaking those things in slowly is a really important thing to do to allow your body to get used to those new forces again. You know, and so I think as clinicians, a lot of the time we need to understand that these types of protocols and these types of things can be a really positive tool for our patients and and, and giving them a different idea and a little bit more variability to their thing. Because when you really get dialed in to just one thing and anybody who's ever worn one pair of shoes and dudes are, are really the ones that do this the most amount of time for a year or a year and a half, and that's all they wear every day, as soon as they change that pair of footwear into something different, that changes the forces dramatically and overnight, man, they can wind up, you know, sore. And so we take uh, factory workers who work in the same work boot for 10 to 12 hours a day on concrete floors every day, and all of a sudden, the boot truck doesn't have the boot that they're used to wearing. And overnight, those forces just get radically altered too fast. And, you know, if you stress a tissue that, that much, that quickly, sure, that is certainly a risk factor for injury. I've seen people where uh, their heel is uh, like a half an inch or a quarter inch higher on one side. Yes. I guess they've worn the boots or the shoes for years and they're pronating, pronating, pronating. Yep. So I'm sure when they put on a new pair, like for me, it feels good if I get a new pair. Like now okay. that I wear like zero shoes, if I wear regular ones, I feel like I'm walking on marshmallows. It's weird. Right. And before right. it used to be like, oh, I heard so bad. So it's, it's amazing what you get used to, you know, it really is. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and again, some people are going to be able to get used to that and they're going to love it. And other people, even though they do all the right things to try to get used to it, are still going to be uncomfortable. It's a matter of figuring out what your body can deal with and then work with that. You know, I've got some patients with arthritis of their big toe, love that kind of footwear. And that's the thing that we need to do to get them better. I've got other people who just wouldn't be able to, or haven't been able to do that kind of protocol. And we've had to figure out that a carbon rocker shoe for them is, is the only thing that keeps them pain-free. And so it really is a matter of using all the available tools in your toolbox and not just get, you know, pigeonholed into one type of treatment method. So what do you do that your average podiatrist doesn't do or won't do? What do I do that the average podiatrist won't do? Man, that's a, that's an interesting question. You know, I would like to think that we're all open for, for, you know, these types of things. I've been to, I've been to a couple and they don't seem to do what you do. And gotcha. I, would think, I would think most, I don't know, most of your clients have they been to podiatrists before and do they complain? And, you know, so it sounds a, like what I'm you're a, doing is more avant-garde, I, you know? Yeah. So I'm a podorthist. So I have a different set of training. So I have a PhD in health and rehabilitation science with a minor in in measurement and methods. And uh, I'm a Canadian certified podorthist. So I'm trained in the design and the manufacture of custom photoorthotics and footwear and how that relates to lower limb injury. A podiatrist has a different set of training. They're actually an MD. Some of them have done surgical residencies. Some of them have done more biomechanics training. So we fabricate custom orthotics ourselves right? Whereas a podiatrist oftentimes will send them to an external lab. So, the oh, so the, you're, you're like the external, uh, 
they take the mold, they send it to a place like you to make the actual orthotics or no? Exactly, exactly. And so, okay. you know, to, to that end, we, and, and there are podiatrists that own labs. So there are some great, you know, Kevin Kirby owns a lab and, you know, Doug Ritchie, and there's some really good people that own labs. But by and large, the majority of podiatrists, they, they're, they're doing the other part of podiatry. They're not manufacturing orthotics. And that's one of the big differences between us. And so we'll modify a device over and over and over until we figure out what that patient's puzzle is. Um, whereas sometimes the thinking on the other side, and again, this isn't a blanket statement, but the one thing that I've noticed is that it's a little bit more, hey, this is the way your foot should work. Let's get used to this. Whereas we're a bit more, you know, hey, let's see how your body responds to this and then change based on that response. So when someone wears orthotics, does it weaken their foot because the orthotic is taking the brunt of what they need or does it strengthen the foot? Like what's the, the dialogue back and forth there? Well, and, and there's actually a chapter in the book that talks about that stuff specifically because, you know, there's there's a lot of really kind of, you know, orthotics are evil, shoes are evil. It's a conspiracy that's destroying the world's arches one foot at a time kind of thought process out there. And there was one small paper that just came out uh, in the beginning of, or the, maybe the end of last year, that talked about differences in muscle volume between wearing orthotics for a few weeks and not. So they've theorized that even though function didn't change, the cross-sectional area and volume of the muscle changed after its use for a few weeks. And then there's other research that suggests if you have a really low arched foot, that either just doing exercises or exercises with the orthotic, the exercise and orthotic group got stronger faster. So there's both sides of that puzzle that you can read the literature on. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years in terms of, of getting people better with this as a treatment modality. Now, the one interesting thing that we see that, again, where my treatment might be a bit different is that we take people out of orthotics when they don't need them anymore. You know, I don't view these things as a forever, forever sentence. You know, there are certain conditions, like if you have rheumatoid arthritis, or if you're diabetic, or if you have osteoarthritis, yes, you're probably going to use this device longer term. But there are other conditions that are a bit more acute when they're not responding to traditional care. We can use these things as a tool, but then remove them once patients get better. We can slowly wean people out. Some people will be able to get off them completely, and other people might need them for certain activities. But again, it's figuring that part out uh, at the end. And, you know, not every clinician wants to see people back over and over and over to figure out that puzzle. What about men and women that wear pointy shoes instead of like, you know, box toe ones or women that wear pointy shoes and high heels, you know? That is, that is the reason why I have a job, my friend. Uh, and so, you well, know, what, what happens? Did. Yeah, what does that do to people's feet? You know, I've seen well, people with toe spreaders that are the opposite, but I've seen a lot of people with like these pointy shoes. What happens to them? Yeah. So remind me, we're going to get to toe spreaders at the end of this because, you know, there's good and bad there too. You know, when it comes to wearing something like a stiletto, so if you're taking your foot, which is shaped like a foot, and putting it into something that's not always shaped like a foot, and then, you know, raising the heel up dramatically, it wouldn't be shocking to suggest that that person's going to wind up with injury over a period of time. And so we see that quite often. And so I would definitely avoid, you know, try to get people out of pointed toed, tight, narrow, you know, types of footwear. What's really interesting is if, again, you look back to some of the scary stuff that you can read online about footwear, is that, you know, maybe that was the way footwear was made 50 years ago, 
that's really not the way that that a lot of athletic footwear is made these days and certainly a certain class of casual dress shoe. So for instance, you know, Echo makes some amazing men's casual dress shoes that have reasonable toe boxes, right? They're not these, you know, big, crazy, pointed fashion type shoes. And so, you know, they might, might look good with suit, but, you know, over, over time, uh, they certainly can lead to, uh, to problems. Now, when it comes to toe spreaders, you, you had talked about that, uh, you know, specifically. That can be one thing that can help you make that brain foot connection again. But the one interesting thing that people don't often think about with a lot of the toe spreaders is that even though, you know, when you look at the, the distance between how they're spaced out, the, you know, not every toe spreader on the market these days are actually anatomically made. So the width between the, the, the actual, you know, toes are the same across everything, whereas your toes might not be. So I've had multiple patients because these toe spreaders are becoming really common. You can buy them at any grocery store. Lots of yoga places sell them. They're, they're very, very popular. And I've had a multitude of patients come in over the last five years where they've taken that thing and with no no real idea of how to use them properly or instructions. They've just jammed them in between their toes to get them moving again. And what ends up happening is that you can tear the small intermetatarsal ligament or sometimes even the joint capsule. And when that happens, your toes split. So instead of being straight, they actually go in the opposite direction from one another. I think even on the on the video that we have there, there's a, a lady in, in the front row when we talk about that. She even said, yeah, that's exactly what happened to my toes when when I used spreaders incorrectly. What do you so, mean they like, split? Like what, what, what happened? The, the, so, the fractured uh, or the, the No, no. The actual, so the, the actual ligament in between, in the ball of the foot that holds the metatarsals together, tore. You can tear ah. that or you can tear the joint capsule. And then the toes, instead, instead of the toes being parallel, they actually, you know, split from one another. And so if, if you take your fingers and make a peace sign, that's kind of what their toes look like. Uh, and and you, you can't fix that once that happens. I mean, you can with surgery, but, you know, yeah, people don't often go and do that. So that is my biggest public service announcement when it comes to this kind of thing is if you're going to use toe spreaders, just go slow. You know, don't, what does don't slow push mean? It. Just not as wide or, what do you, or not as slow, many hours? It can, it can mean not as wide. It can mean not as many hours. And it can mean if, you know, depending on the shape of your foot, because human feet are insanely variable, you know, you know, no, when it comes down to how these things are made, you know, you've, the, the individual morphology is incredibly variable. So if you're one of those people who have really short toes um, and they're, they're very much stuck together, you know, using a wide toe spreader that has the same thickness across each toes, especially in like your fourth and fifth and third and fourth web spaces, you just have to be careful and don't push them in quite as much. And, and just go slow with that. Because if you, if you push it, you're going to tear, you, you have the, the good possibility of tearing something. So take it from me, folks. <laughs> we've, we've, I mean, I deal with the aftermath all the time. And there are these things right. called toe loops that we, we give to people who don't want to go the surgical route uh, that they actually have to, it's, it's like buddy taping their toes back together again. Yeah. So if you catch it early enough, you can actually get the toes back together and it'll help to scar down. But if you don't catch it early enough, then it scars down and your toes are spread. And yeah. ladies, ladies who want to wear sandals are really angry when they come into the office and there's, there's not much more that you can do. Yeah, that's crazy. So again, as you said, with everything, go slow, go gentle. 
you know, with toe spreaders, with all kinds of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. What about uh, bunions or hammer toes or all these weird things that I've seen? How do those happen and what can you do for them? Well, when it comes down to bunions, um, the first thing is that up to 78% of why you get it is genetically mediated in the first place. It's where muscles insert and how they pull and how that repetitive pull over time can change things. And so, you know, to that end, you can bring that process along faster by wearing things like pointed toed shoes and stilettos and, you know, stuff like that, or even for men, really fashion forward pointed toed shoes. Then things like injury will bring it on faster. Going on point too early if you're a dancer, you know, certainly is not good for your feet. You know, dancers really beat up their feet. So, you know, if, if you wanted to know something that can help to strengthen, you know, your foot, it's, dan- you know, dance. But on the flip side of that, if done too much, too soon, too quickly, just like anything, it can also hurt you as well. Um, So with that, some of the best things that you can do, and there was one study that came out, the only study so far that actually showed a change in the shape of a bunion was doing manual manipulations, strength, and individually larger toe spacers as people got got stronger. And that that change actually held for a year up after that after that uh, protocol. But every physio that I've talked to to try to recreate that protocol, it's a very, very, very involved thing. And I haven't been able to find somebody who wants to spend that much on physio just yet to do it. So um, there's a, another PT researcher uh, in the States. His name is Ward Glasso. And he's talked about strengthening a muscle called your abductor hallucis, which is the main muscle that the short foot exercise works on. And because of its orientation and where it inserts onto the metatarsal, that if you can get that muscle stronger, it's going, it, or it may help to reduce uh, the pulling of the muscle that starts to make the toe drift a little bit. And so, you know, when we talk to people about bunions, it's a making sure that they're in the appropriate foot gear for them. Okay, so something that could be a little bit wider, that's not pointed, that's appropriately matched for what they want to do. The other thing could be plus or minus a custom foot orthotic, depending on the type of pressures that they have. If they're one of those people and I, you know, if we were doing a a video when I could show you some some plantar pressure measurements on people, if all of the pressure when you come off is off of your big toe off just the inside of it, then that's pushing your toe too. So we help to reduce that overall making sure that you're adequately flexible because if you lose muscle, if you lose the ability to use your ankle joint as a proper hinge ankle joint, then the easiest way for your body to compensate is to out toe and pronate more, which is going to force you off the inside of that big toe, pushing it even further. And then things like strength spacers, that, you know, night splints, again, night splints are more of a symptomatic thing than they are trying to reduce the the overall progression and shape of your bunion. Lots of stuff on Facebook that you see out there where it's like, hey, fix your bunion. And they look at this like crazy straight toe after someone has a really big bunion. They don't work like that, unfortunately. So again, public service announcement to that end. So those are the things that we talk about for uh, for the most part. And again, we do it in a way that's sort of stepwise and progressive depending on, you know, sort of their needs and their wants. So what's, um, are you still challenged by what you do or is it pretty well known I, in your, your treatment? No, oh my gosh, no, I am challenged every day, not only by the type of patient base that I see, because I, I tend to see, you know, people who, haven't done well with sort of traditional therapy um, or, you know, other orthotic providers or things like that. So I, I have a, 
a really unique subset of osteoarthritic patients and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I, so I love it. I mean, it's been 20 years and it doesn't feel like work. Honestly, I'm truly blessed by what I do. The other component of this is what's going on in my research. So, you know, we published a paper back in 2019 in the uh, International Society for Prosthetics and Orthotics that looked at the differences between hard and soft orthotics and how your foot actually moved in the shoe. So we used biplanar fluoroscopy and CT imaging to be able to see how the foot was moving real time in a shoe under different kinds of uh, types of foot orthotics. And we were able to show that hard and soft orthotics controlled the motion of your foot you know, equally. So you could use either to produce a, a change. That's great. The most interesting part of that research was actually digging into how much change really happened. So again, you go back to the scary stuff on the internet that's talking about how, you know, walking in a shoe is like walking in a cast and why would you walk in a cast and blah, blah, blah. Well, we use the most scientifically accurate way in the world, which is using a movie x-ray and then taking a human, a CT skeleton of that foot. And at 17 frames a second, move that skeleton foot over two x-rays to be able to see what was really happening in the shoe in real time. And what we saw was that while there was a statistically significant reduction in the motion of the arch, people still kept up to 96% of their barefoot motion while they were in shoes. The shoe versus the barefoot condition, only 1.3% of their motion was lost. Yeah, so it's, ask you, what, what about, uh, you know, I've heard, again, some people say shoes are terrible and some people point to like the heel drop, you know, that the yep. heel is sure. is higher up. So the Achilles yeah. is chronically shortened. I mean, what mm -hmm. are your thoughts there? Well, so, so either way, those people have zero shoes to sell you. And the other people who have uh, a shoe with a heel raise are going to tell you it unloads your Achilles. So if you have chronic Achilles tendinosis, and you have uh, you know, a congenitally short Achilles and someone who has congenitally tight collagen and can't, can't you know, get more flexible, that, that, that heel drop shoe is, man, that's going to be great for you. you know? But if you have big toe osteoarthritis, then maybe being in a lower heel shoe is going to be good for you. So I am not a fan of saying that this is right and that is wrong or this is good and that's bad. It's really figuring out how to appropriately apply it to the condition that the person comes to you with. And so I think when we take, when, when we try to take one theory and make it apply to everybody, that's where we run into troubles and especially when it comes to, to feet. So getting back to the research on that side, if, if people are retaining up to 96% of their original barefoot motion, well, then what's really going on? Why are people getting better when they do these things? And that's the most challenging thing I'm going to have for the next 20 years is figuring out the qualitative side of what we do. So from a biomechanics perspective, yes, we understand some things. Will we understand everything? Certainly not. So there's work to be done over there. But there's also work on the other side as to like, what are we really doing in this person's shoe? If we're only controlling small amounts of motion, what, what's the other component that we're not thinking about yet? What percentage of your patients you can't help or you're just mystified? Like, like I don't know, I tried everything. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and that happens. So, so two things happen. There are some people that we try everything and they just, they, they don't get better and they just, they, they can't 
we can't get them comfortable in, in shoes and orthotics. And I mean, man, we try our hardest. We remake devices. We try different kinds, hard, soft, different kinds of materials, different kinds of drops of shoes. And when we, when we can't help those people because of where they usually see me in the journey of things. So people typically will go to their family doctor, their family doctor will send them to physio. If things aren't working with physio, then they'll often go see maybe an osteo or a physiatrist. And if that's not working, that's usually when I get to see people. And so if we can't get them better in that end, the next referral from there is surgical. And so, you know, no, I can't okay, treat well, anybody. It's further down the road. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I certainly can't treat everybody. You know, I thought I could when I came out of school all those years ago. But no, and, and, and we're really realistic with those, those kinds of outcomes right from the get-go and say, hey, listen, we're going to do our best, but just know that not everybody reacts to these things well. And there's always the risk, of course, when we change something that something else is going to get sore. And so, no, it's not an embarrassing question at all. It's, it's I don't actually know until we try whether or not we're going to get them better. And there's a line that I use in every assessment that I do is that if we treat you and you're 100% with my first go, I got lucky more than I'm skillful. And honestly, it's because, you know, there is no XYZ formula equals this treatment outcome when it comes to footwear and orthotics that just doesn't exist. Well, very good. Uh Colin, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? And I don't know if you just work in one state or if you can go nationally somehow with telehealth. Yeah, yeah what, so, what like so we're we're in Canada. I'm in London, Ontario. And uh, certainly we'll, we, we can do Zoom calls with people if they're interested. Uh, the website, you can go on to check out, uh, you know, more, more of what I do, the books that I've written, courses, that kind of stuff. It's stuffaboutfeet.com. Stuffaboutfeet.com. Okay. That's it. All right. Very good. Well, thank you for coming. And it's, uh, it's cool and it's rare, I think, to speak to someone like you that, uh, you know, really studies this and is into it and wants to solve these problems. So I appreciate thank you coming you. on the call. Oh, I really appreciate you having me on the call. Thanks for an engaging conversation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.